we we may think that certain certain activities bear no consequence but no matter what the activity everything bears a consequence but not everything is sin but everything that is sin is destructive the end result is sin and it says in the book of James chapter 1 every man is tempted of his own lust and it says when lust hath conceived it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death the end product the end result of sin is destructive no matter what kind you pick the sin you know you say lying some that may seem as harmless so called as lying the end result of lying is destructive and i'm not i'm not just talking about just hell and even though that is the place we do not want to go that is the ultimate destination of sin but here on this earth sin plays out if someone is lying it will catch up with them and it has a destructive result gossiping may not seem like a big deal because you're not literally putting a knife in the back of somebody but that proverbial knife you put in the back of someone through gossiping eventually it catches up and it is destructive you name this sin, you name adultery, fornication, whatever it is, it ultimately has a bad ending Anytime we live outside the confines of the law of God. If you ever want to do an interesting study, uh, you can go in the Old Testament and read through the Levitical law about leprosy. Leprosy is a, a horrific disease, and it's incurable, and it is extremely destructive. And in fact, the Bible gave such uh, length and detail how to handle this particular disease. Basically, said if you see a scab or a boil on the flesh, you know, look at it, separate yourself from others, and kind of observe it. See if it spreads. See what kind of coloration there is. Check on it weekly. Even if there was colors in the house, if there was any mold on the wall, you were to basically investigate that, scrape some of the plaster off the wall and and just keep looking to see if it has been removed, if it has been solved, if it has been fixed. And the reason why they uh, were so detailed about it is because they wanted to make sure there was no permissible grounds for someone with that disease to live within the camp. If someone had that, they would send them outside of the camp, outside of the city of the rest of the people of God. Now, that may sound terrible, but if somebody had a some ravenous disease that was horrific and contagious, you don't want that spreading throughout the community. And so you would have to take that person that had that disease and separate them from the community. And it's it makes complete sense if you saw a stranger walking towards you like, you know, the zombie apocalypse and, you know, they're just kind of staggering and their nose falls to the ground and their eye rolls out and, and then they go to reach for you and their, their hand falls off. You, you rightfully so would be startled and you would be taken aback and, and you would gasp, you would run and you would not want that into your home, into your family. Makes sense, right? When you think of it in this regard, that you're sitting at your house 
And as you're sitting at the table, you came home from a long day's work and you're surrounded with your spouse and your children and you say your prayer and, and, and your child, you ask them for one of those beautiful corn muffins, well buttered, and they go to hand you that basket of corn muffins that's well buttered. And as they extend it towards you, you reach for it and you notice a spot on your child's hand. All of a sudden, you are a little nervous, you're a little worried, and you begin to second-guess that spot on your child's hand. No, it's, it can't be leprosy. It's just not possible. Not my kid. That wouldn't be in my home. And, and you begin to justify why. Because that leprosy now has a face that you are emotionally attached to. All of a sudden, starts messing with your head a little bit because... It's easy to kick someone out of the camp that is estranged from you, that you do not know, that is distant, that you have no relationship with. But when you see leprosy in your home, it becomes a little more difficult to get so hard line about it because that is your spouse or that is your son, that is your daughter, that is your aunt, your uncle, your grandma, your grandpa, your cousin. You understand what I'm saying? You don't want to see them outside of the camp never to be in contact with them again. It is any time we read in the Old Testament of something literal, it is an example of something in the New Testament spiritual. Leprosy in the literal is that disease. But in the New Testament, in the spiritual, it is sin. Sin is that leprosy. It does not start off very major. It doesn't look very big. It doesn't look very destructive. But that small disease begins to spread and destroy the nervous system of the human body. And the end result is death. Mark chapter 10 in verse 6. Jesus is talking here. And he says, from the beginning. Everyone say, from the beginning. From the beginning of creation, Jesus is making a point here and he draws all the way back to the beginning as a reference point. He goes back to the creation account, the Genesis account. And he said, in the beginning, in creation, God made them. Who made them? God. And who did he make? Male and female. From the beginning... At creation, God made male and female. There's only two genders that I can find here in this portion of Scripture. Looking for the other 100 or 200 that can be on a job application. In verse 7, he says, This cause shall a man leave his father and mother. He goes all the way back to the beginning and goes to the present. He says, since the beginning to the present, this is how it always has been. Because God made them that way. And a man was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He was to get married to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, meaning they are now married. They are together. They are no more two, but they are one. And in verse 9, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together. God is the one that set it up. God's the one that instituted it. God's the one that initiated it. 
let no man put asunder. What God has set up, what God has done, the way God orchestrated it, the way God intended it, he said, don't let anybody undo that. Don't let anyone divide that. Don't let anyone change that. See, the adversary in the world are doing everything they can to undo what God has done. What God has done from the beginning. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. From the beginning. What God set in motion. What God intended. What God initiated. You can count on this. Anything and everything that God has done. The enemy is trying to undo. The enemy is trying to unravel. The enemy is trying to twist. He's trying to cause confusion and doubt. And right away, when you see the setting with Adam and Eve at the garden and Eve talking with the serpent, the Eve says, half God said. Immediately, he challenges what God had decreed. What God had declared. Something that is so understandable at face value and beyond that value. When you look, it makes, it makes perfect sense. But once you just throw a question of doubt in there, all of a sudden you can get a footing in the door. And that is how the enemy works. Half, did God really mean what God said? Did he really mean it that way? Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus again speaking here two chapters prior. He says, what is it going to profit a man? What advantage is it for a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. People in churches are trying everything they can to gain the approval of everyone. They don't want there to be any division. They don't want there to be any disagreement. They want everybody to like the presentation, which there should be that inside of us. We are not here to make enemies. We're not here intentionally to cause division. We never start off with uh, the motive of a church service saying, you know what? I wonder who I can tick off today. I wonder who I can make ever-loving mad. I wonder who we we can uh, uh, set up to fall here today. That's never the motive. At least it never should be the motive of any church ever. But there are churches, there are people who go to great lengths to make sure they please everybody to such an extent they forget about pleasing God. Ephesians 6, 6 tells us not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ. We do that which is pleasing unto God, not just to please people. Amen? In verse 37, he says, And what shall a man give in exchange for a soul? And whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and ashamed of my words. See, it's easy to say I'm not ashamed of Jesus. But when you dig a little deeper and you read all the statements of Jesus, you'll find out whether or not you're really ashamed of him. Because Jesus wasn't just a personality walking around. Jesus was the Word made flesh. Jesus brought forth doctrine. Jesus brought forth teachings. It wasn't just Jesus 
there walking around. It was Jesus talking everywhere he went walking. And he began to make statements. And Jesus says, look, it's, it, it's one thing you could say you're not ashamed of me. But are you ever ashamed of my words? Because Jesus said a lot more than John 3.16. And I'll take it a step further. Jesus said a lot more than John 3.5. Jesus talked more than just repentance and belief. Jesus talked more than just about water baptism. And Jesus talked more than just about spirit baptism. Jesus had a whole lot to say. In fact, at the end of John, it says there's no way to even write down everything that Jesus said or Jesus performed in the realm of the miraculous. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of my words, someone say the words of Jesus. And this is the, the generation that you live in. It is an adulterous generation. It is a sinful generation. And if you ever find yourself ashamed of my words, the result of that shame will be the Son of Man, or Jesus Christ, ashamed of you. I want to live a life that is pleasing unto God. I want to live in such a manner that Jesus Christ says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. See, Jesus said, really, we have nothing to be ashamed of. He says, the reason why you shouldn't be ashamed is because they're my words. I'm not borrowing someone else's words. These are my words. And you ought not to be ashamed of my words. Because the words of Jesus stand the test of time. Because his word is forever settled in heaven, as it says in Psalm 119 and verse 89. And if we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. I'm not sure if you... Notice here lately a more than average presence of, of rainbow gear in the atmosphere. Let me just say this. It's not to celebrate the uh, Noahic covenant of Noah coming off the ark and God setting his bow in the cloud. You all remember that story? In the, the rainbow that, that was originally the original purpose of the rainbow was a promise of God. It was a God that promises under this emblem, there will not be destruction in this manner. This is my covenant with you. This is my agreement with you. And just like we said earlier, the enemy does everything to undo what God has done. He does everything he can to redefine any and every promise of God. If you're not aware of this, I'll just give you a little quick brief history lesson. I'm not an historian, but I know a little about this and a little bit about that every now and again. But this June 28th, 1969 represents 50 years ago of the Stonewall riots that occurred in Manhattan, New York. If you're not sure what that is, they were violent protests and there was a lot of rioting against police raids that were happening in gay bars. And it was very common in that day that the homosexual movement, they were discriminated and they were literally considered a security threat to the country. And they were on the American Psychiatric Association of Mental Disorder. There was a completely different worldview back then. And I'll just say it right off the front before you get a little too nervous. I, I do not believe uh, that we are to discriminate 
that we are to be hateful, that we are to be mean-spirited, to be bigoted, to begin to, you know, look as if we are better or superior than anybody that is in any type of lifestyle. Okay, I am, I am actually thankful for some of the advances of the civil rights movement in particular segments of society because we ought not to be abusive towards anyone. We ought not to degrade anybody. We ought not to be physically harmful to anybody. Someone say amen. And we should have a loud amen at that place right there. In Romans 1.16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of this good news, this gospel about Christ. Remember what Jesus said, do not be ashamed about my words. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because every word that Jesus presents, it is the power of God. What Jesus says is powerful. And that power of God is to be at work saving everyone who believes. So no matter what the word of Jesus, it is not to kill people not to harm people it is to help people it is to save people so when we rewind back to the book of mark chapter 10 and the book of mark chapter 8 when jesus makes some strong stances about marriage the sanctity of marriage and the relationship between a man and a woman it is not something that is shameful something to be embarrassed about something to be nervous to discuss it is the words of Jesus Christ, and he established from the beginning. And if Jesus established it, it is the power of God and is to be at work saving everyone who believes. I have a point here. Just hang on for a moment, please. In verse 17, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from, to, uh, from start to finish by faith, from beginning to end. From the onslaught of creation to now, God has set something in motion to redeem mankind. But if we look here in verse 17, or verse 18, he says, but God shows his anger. Now, we don't like to talk about this element of God, but there is an angry side of God. Against what? All that is sinful. Wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There is an intentional effort of the enemy to suppress the truth by wickedness, by trying to let darkness eclipse the light. We're not doing God or truth any favors by attempting to make darkness and light compatible. There, there's a host and a whole slew of people that try to suppress the truth. Why? Because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. In 119 here, Romans, it says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Now, this is the kind of God we serve. God does everything he can to make things very obvious. Since the world was created, verse 20, again, Paul, just like Jesus, draws from the beginning, draws from the Genesis account, draws from creation. And he says, since the beginning of the world was created, People have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made. And they can clearly see his invisible qualities. Remember God, whatever natural element, it is revealing a spiritual concept or truth about God. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Look at this. Look at verse 20. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. 
you hear the question and the contemplation. What about, you know, in the, in, in the recesses of, you know, some dark jungle, some third world country where, where, where nobody's ever brought a Bible? The Bible says God loves people so much. He's doing everything possible to put inside of man the concept and the idea that there's something more than just man. There's something out there. And God has used nature to reveal his deity. God did not give nature to be deity. See, we're, we're, we're making everything backwards. Remember what God sets from creation, man reverses and the devil undoes it and and tries to redirect our attention where before creation was to point to God but now it's got people pointing to creation as God we got people serving and more worried about saving the planet than saving a purpose a person we got more people worried and concerned about the condition of the earth than the people that live on this earth now I'm not saying as a Christian, we just say, you know, whoop-de-doo to the earth and let's, you know, go ahead and throw trash on the ground and let's not, let's not care at all about the earth. No, not at all. I believe we need to be good stewards of what God has given us and we need to be respectful of the place that God has given us to live in. Someone say amen. But it goes on here saying in verse 21, yes, they knew God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks to him. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. They began to see plainly what God tried to get them to look to him about. But then they began to think of different ways about God. They began to come up with their own concepts and ideologies or theologies about what God was like. And a result of when you try to make God be what you want him to be, your mind becomes dark and confused. Now, it may sound smart, verse 22. You can claim to be wise because your philosophy and, and, and this, this amazing concept that you engineered in your mind. But it says the result of that is you become an utter fool. And then instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, these people began to worship idols and made them to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So how did God react to that? Verse 24. God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Now, today we're having a little Bible study because I want to make sure there is some clear communication about something in our society that is predominant right now. In verse 25, it says, they traded the truth. Think about that. I mean, it's one thing to trade a baseball card. It's one thing to trade, you know, you know, maybe a puppy for a cat. I don't know. But trading the truth? What are we doing when we trade the truth about God for a lie just to feel better? And so they worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself who's worthy of eternal praise. Amen. In verse 26, that's why God abandoned them. This is very important. I need you to listen very carefully. This is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way. God set in nature. That's what nature is, natural, organic. That is what God established from the beginning. The natural way, natural way to have sex instead of they indulge in sex with each other. In verse 27, it says, even the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, they burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men as a result of this sin. They suffered within themselves the penalty 
they deserve. Meaning, because they chose to give in to their way, God says there was a consequence. Remember, sin doesn't start off as major or as blunt in your face as you think, but the end result of it is destructive. And he goes in verse 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, God abandoned them to their foolish singing. They didn't want to acknowledge God, so God says, okay, I'll leave you to your own thoughts. And he let them do the things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. Invent new ways of sinning. Think about that. Disobey their parents, refuse to understand, break their promises, heartless, have no mercy. Knowing God's justice requires those that do these things. There is a penalty that is paid. This is that eternal destination called hell. But they do it anyways. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. See, everything that is contrary to God's holy nature right now is encouraged. Everything that is contrary to the very nature of God is promoted. Everything that is contrary to the holiness of God is actually celebrated and put on a pedestal in our modern society right now. This is the product of a world that is unashamed and a church that is ashamed. This, where we are at right now, this is, this is not surprise 2,000 years ago, Jesus addressed the topic. 2,000 years ago, the apostles addressed the topic, saying, when we live in such a manner as a Christian, where we're ashamed of his word, we will live in a society that's not ashamed to change his word. And now we have the result where people walk around in their pride parade where they're not ashamed or embarrassed at all. They'll celebrate an entire month of that which is contrary to the word of God and redefining that which God established as a beautiful sign of a covenant between God and humanity as a way to say, look, I'm not going to bring destruction again in this manner. But now this guise of peace under this emblem is bringing about a false peace and an idea that there is no consequence to that lifestyle, but there is a consequence. Now, I know, again, some people are nervous, but I promise you, just hold on to your horses. God's going to do something for us here in a moment. What I just read, there's 21 sins mentioned, 21 sins, and only two reference homosexuality, one with the relationship with men and one with women. The majority of your Bible doesn't even address the issue of homosexuality. When someone begins to think that the Bible is some bigoted book that singles out and is hard on one sin, that is one of the most inaccurate statements you can make. Because gossip is mentioned a hundredfold more. Discord amongst people is referenced a hundredfold more than homosexuality. Fornication, heterosexual sins, is mentioned thousandfold more times than any sin of homosexuality. Why? Because that particular sin is very uncommon. The other sins are very common. But right now, you would think as if this is the most common activity in our world today because it's put in our face 
day after day after day. We should never stoop to be a church that refuses to discuss what the Bible mentions. Any topic. You pick any topic, all right? But there are legitimate questions about this topic concerning homosexuality. It shouldn't be brushed off. It shouldn't be dismissed. It shouldn't be something that we ignore and we kind of just twill our thumbs and pretend it's not in your Bible. You should have some genuine questions about this subject matter found in your Bible because it's not about, well, God doesn't care. No, we just read some pretty heavy scripture of how God set it up from the beginning. You know, if the very common statement is, well, I can't do anything about it. I was born this way. I'm not here to fuss and cuss and try to defend one stance over the other, whether someone can be born with homosexual tendencies or not born with those tendencies. I believe it is possible because we are born in a fallen state of man. Okay? Now, whether or not that, that crosses someone's theology, I'm not here to fuss and cuss that point. The point is, we live in a fallen state of humanity. And I do believe there are people that are born with propensities towards anger, people that are born with propensities of violence, people that are born with propensities to be deceptive, whatever the case may be. But however you were born, what did Jesus say in John 3, 3 and 3, 5? You can be born again. If you are born in your particular state of someone that is angry, that is hateful, that is a liar, that is fearful, whatever state you don't like about yourself, the world, they can do whatever physical operation on your body, but that does not deal with the spirit of man because there's not a knife, there's not a scalpel that man can provide to get to the core of the heart of the human spirit. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, it is only the word of God that is alive and is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's only the word of God made flesh that can pierce dividing asunder of soul and spirit. There's no scalpel but the word of God that can deal with the core of any human issue and what we struggle with and what we may be contemplating or dissatisfied with. Someone say amen. From the beginning, Ephesians 4, 17, Paul speaks to the church. He says, I, I, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Do not walk as everyone else is walking. And they're walking in the vanity of their mind. People keep going with how they can intellectually justify something. But we as Christians are not here to intellectually justify anything. We're here to obey the word of God and not to be ashamed about it. Having the under, the, the, those that walk this the other way, they have the understanding darkened. And they're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because the blindness of their heart. They don't want to believe it. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But that's not what we learn in Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth that is in Jesus. Look at verse 22. What it is, whatever you have lived in or are living in that is contrary to the word, we are to put off the former conversation of the old. That word conversation means behavior, not actually like having a discussion. We are to take whatever old element that is not of God to take it off of us. 
And it says in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man. When we get into the church, we believe in come as you are. Everyone is welcome in this church. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter what you did before you walked in this building. Every single person is invited here, welcome to be here. But the ultimate goal is not come as you are, the, or, or is, is, is uh, not stay as you are. God wants to change us. Everyone comes as they are. But our goal is not to stay as we are. It is to let the Spirit of God take off the old man, put on the new man, and to give us a new mind, a new way of thinking. And God created, look at that creation concept in verse 24 again. God created that in righteousness, just like he created Adam and Eve in righteousness and purity and true holiness. So what do we do? Put away lying. Any, anyone, that, anyone that lies, put that lying away. Verse 26, if you're angry, sin not. No matter the sin, it's still sin. Look at, look at verse 28. Let him that steal or stole steal no more. You probably heard the statement about the person said, you know, look, I'm, I'm a kleptomaniac, but I'm taking something for it. And that's a profound thought right there. But Paul says multiple times, whatever your vice is, whatever your struggle is, don't give in to that struggle. Verse 26 says, be angry and sin not. Whatever your compulsion, the Bible teaches restraint. The Bible teaches self-denial. The Bible teaches temperance. What is the first attribute of a Christian when he invited people to follow him? If any man wants to follow after me, take up, uh, he must first deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Whatever your impulse is, if you are wired to be sexual like a hound dog with the opposite sex, you're still to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If your compulsion is anger and you want to knock the ever-loving daylights out of somebody, just because that's how you feel, we don't give in to how we feel. We are Christians. We don't give in to impulse. We don't give in to the first feeling that pops into our head or in our mind. As Christians, Jesus is if any man will come after me, deny himself. Deny whatever it is that conflicts with the word of God. And for some people, it's lying. You have to deny your desire to lie. Some people, it's anger. You have to deny. You could, the Bible says you can be angry. That could be a struggle. But you don't give in to that struggle. You deny it. And you ask God to renew your mind. And you may struggle with homosexual tendencies. But that does not give permissible grounds to give in to the struggle. You may legitimately want to break someone's neck, but as a Christian, you don't give in the desire to break someone's neck. And so we exercise restraint by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The sinful nature wants to do evil. All of us in this room, every single person in this room has that. Every single person. There is not one exempt from this. We have sinful nature that wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. So whatever you want to do that the Word says not to do, it says that is the opposite of the Holy Spirit. It's an evil spirit. And the Spirit gives us the desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Meaning, whatever it is you're struggling with, the Spirit can give you the opposite of it. Whatever your battle is, the power of the Holy Ghost wants to help you overcome it. 
You struggle with anger, he wants to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. You struggle with depression, the joy of the Lord can be your strength. Whatever it is that you struggle with, the Holy Spirit can give the opposite of that sinful nature. It goes on in verse 17. These two forces, and you better know, there are two. I'm not talking Luke Skywalker kind of forces, the light side, the dark side, the Jedi, whatever. I'm talking about the word. of There are two opposing forces that are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. And that's, that can end in a bitter note if you don't read verse 18. But verse 18 says, but when you're directed by the Spirit, You're not under that. You're not under all of that. God sets you free. But if you disobey the law of God, verse 19 says, you will follow the desires of your sinful nature. And the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idultery, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaking. And here, I mentioned last time, there's 21 sins mentioned. Here, there's 15 sins mentioned. And then he says, but also not limited to. And the the Bible lists other sins way more often and frequent than homosexuality. In fact, it's not even mentioned here. So you cannot say the Bible is some hate-filled book that picks on one type of struggle. Greed, hatred, gossip. In fact, heterosexual sins are named 104 times more than homosexuality. This, This topic is not about discrimination. It's about salvation. Any sin, it boils down to the kingdom of God. And no sin can enter into the kingdom of God. I'm about done, so don't, don't, don't walk out quite yet. 1 Timothy 1.8. We know the law is good when it's used correctly. Verse 9, the law was not intended for people who do what is right. The law is intended for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality. He addresses both. It's not about one. It doesn't matter the type of sexual behavior. Both are addressed. Slave traders, it's addressed. Liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. The law was not for one sin. The law was for all sin. God made sure nobody was left out. No matter what your struggle is, how often or not often it's mentioned in the Bible, God made sure to let you know, I am addressing it because you're struggling with it, but I don't want to leave you in it. I want to help you with what your struggle is. Revelation 21 and 3 I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Look at this. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God himself will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there will be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, 
neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Verse 5 says, and he that sat upon the throne says, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Who's talking here? The one sitting on the throne. And he says, I want to make everything new. And who's the one talking on the throne? Verse 6, we find out. It's Jesus. He says, it is done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. We know Jesus said that because you go back to Revelation 1.8. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. He's the one talking from that throne. And he says, I'm here to give you, anyone that's thirsty, from the fountain of the water of life freely. And in verse 7, he says, he that overcometh, someone say overcome, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. Jesus said, no matter who it is that is struggling under the bound of whatever sin it is, I can help you to overcome. You struggling with, with whatever type of sexual addiction, sexual temptation, Jesus says, I can help you overcome that. And if you will do that, I'll be your God. That is a God who doesn't discriminate. That's a God who invites to everybody. You all can taste of this water. And what you are tasting, if you are willing to overcome whatever it is you're struggling with, I want to be your God. He doesn't say, well, no, no, you, you over here, you lied too much, and I don't really, I know, I don't want to be your God. I know you asked for forgiveness. I know you want to drink from my water fountain, but I don't want to be your God because I don't like liars. Oh, you, you over there, okay, I, you know, uh, you, you, you're, you're, you're struggling with racism, and I know you want to change, but no, because you were racist, I'll never love you. I'll never, doesn't matter what it is. Whatever you are willing to allow God to help you overcome, God says, I want to be your God. I will be your God. And every, t- every tear you've ever cried, every hurt, every pain, every regret, I will wash it all away. Look, it's the person that overcomes. And you're going to want to overcome this. In fact, you can overcome this. Jesus said in verse 8, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look at that list. Sort witchcraft, idolatry, people who murder are teamed up with people that just simply don't believe. You can live a completely clean moral life, but yet still not believe in Jesus and not make it to heaven. That doesn't sound like a Bible that picks on only one sin. It's a Bible that says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God loves every single sinner. Because it says in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We do not serve a God who discriminates. We serve a God who wants to help you in whatever your struggle is and to pull you out and to help you to overcome. Whether it's a lying, sorcery, murdering, unbelieving, God will forgive all things. But see, I would venture to say the majority of us here were probably not one or two family members or friends removed that we know is struggling with homosexuality co-worker we work with. It, everywhere you go, you'll, you'll catch a glimpse of it. And when you become emotionally connected to somebody, your mind can start messing with you to justify with what they're struggling with. Now listen to me very carefully. You need to be emotionally connected to people that struggle with homosexuality. You cannot reach somebody you're not willing to have 
relationship with. This, 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 this false notion, this terrible attitude of someone that claims to be a Christian but will not talk to a certain sect of society because of their sin, that is not of God. Every single person, you cannot reach them if you're not in contact with them. You pray for them. You show love. You show kindness. You interact with them. You treat them with respect. You treat them with kindness. You don't mistreat anybody. And so, but, but when you do get emotionally connected to somebody, a loved one's condition does not alter God's position. No matter who your friend or family member is, no matter what their condition, it does not alter God's position. You still love them. You still pray for them. You, still in, you talk to them. You interact with them. But that does not change. That does not give you the permission to say, okay, because I, I think they're a really good person, you know, I, I know that. You know, they, they sleep with a thousand, you know, people. I know that this person, you know, lies about everybody. And they're a good person aside from that. And so God probably is going to overlook. That's not how this works. We are not God. And we are not given the liberty to alter his position. First Corinthians chapter 6. I'm just about done, I promise you. Chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. No matter the sin, the answer is abstinence not indulgence, no matter the sin. We are, just because you have this overwhelming compulsion to give into a particular sin, no matter what it is, the answer is not indulgence. It's abstinence. You abstain from sin. You abstain from that which is wrong, and you make right with God. But check this out. That list of sins that we just read, the heterosexual sins, the homosexual sins, the stealing, the greed, the drunkards, all these sins, the abusive, those that cheat people, none of it makes it into the kingdom of God. But the hope is verse 11. If you haven't got anything, get verse 11. Some of you were once like that. Paul, Paul says that's, that's the kind of God you serve. That whatever condition you are in. God can pull you out, and God can redeem you. He says, you are now cleansed. You are now made holy. You are now made right by God, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's the power of calling upon the name of Jesus when we're baptized in that water. It's the power of being filled with that Holy Spirit in our soul. I'm telling you, some of us were that very list we just read about. But see, what God does is he makes us holy. He justifies it. He makes us right before God as if nothing we've ever done was against God. It's the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. The moment, the very moment that you are forgiven, the very moment you stand right in that thing, it's as if you've never done anything wrong 
in your life. Last three verses, John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple. This is a man he healed. And he said to this man that he healed, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto you. He says, you lived a life of sin. Stop doing it. In other words, it's going to get worse. Stop. Verse 10 of John 8, Jesus lifted up himself. This is when, when a group of religious leaders found a woman in adultery with another man. And they, they pulled that woman out of bed with that man, pulled her out naked, and threw her before Jesus Christ. And they said, this woman's worthy of death. She deserves to be stoned to death. And Jesus ignored all of them. He's sitting, kneeling in the sand, writing. We don't know what he wrote. But he says, whoever has never sinned, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And the Bible says, one by one, beginning from the eldest, you can hear those rocks fall to the sand, thud, thud, thud. And they left that site, and it was just Jesus and that woman. And Jesus looked at her, and he says to her in verse 10, Woman, where are your accusers? Hasn't anyone condemned you? And she said, No. No no man's condemned me, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He didn't justify her behavior. He didn't say her her behavior was okay. That is something that woman literally struggled with. And it's a heterosexual sin. But Jesus didn't say, well, I know because you're heterosexual and you, you feel that compulsion to be with another man. And, you know, no, he didn't justify it. He says it's wrong. And so he says, go and sin no more, not go and sin some more. No matter the sin, it's still abstinence, not indulgence. Let's stand together. The church must take a stand. Because our society is a a result of churches that just don't address the issue, they don't take a stand. In fact, there's a good number of churches in this community that embrace it. It's in their bylaws. It's in in their their denomination itself. And yeah, you, you may seem like you're doing the more loving, welcoming thing, non-discriminatory, all that kind of stuff. Sounds very nice. It sounds very noble. Look, trust me, there's a lot of things I'd like to say, hey, it's no big deal. I'd love to, I'd like to be the person to say, you know, it's no big deal. You know, Alicia, it's no big deal that you did this. You know, uh, Mike, it's no big deal that you did that. You know, Raquel, no big deal that you did this. God doesn't really care. He sees your heart. No big deal. I, I would love to do that. But it's just not what the book says. And it's either we live by the book or we don't. We either believe the Bible or we don't. I believe it's Thomas Jefferson. You could go uh, and find his Bible in the museums in Washington, D.C. I, I saw the Bible. I, I just can't remember if it's Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, but you look in his Bible. It's all, he, he, he got a razor. And every verse that he thought, didn't match what he thought God was. He literally cut it out of his Bible 
And so you can go see his Bible there in Washington, D.C., all di dissected with verses cut out. They say, no, that's got to be a mistake. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't say that. When you start playing like that with your Bible, the whole thing unravels. It's either it's true or it's not true. And the world does such a good job at pressuring all of us to be ashamed of what God has written. Because right now, I mean, while preaching this, I, I could feel the spirit in the air of just tension and awkwardness. And who knows, I, maybe there's people in this room that disagree with everything that I've stated. I have no idea right now. But what I do know is that if I'm ashamed of his words, he'll be ashamed of me. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I do not apologize for what I communicated today. But at the same time, I hope that I clearly communicated with a loving spirit. That's the difference. Because there's some people that are hard-lined against the practice of homosexuality. But they have an awful spirit when they preach it. And a hateful spirit will never reach anybody. And they better be as aggressive about that as they are about drunkenness. And they better be as, if they're going to be aggressive about that, they better be aggressive about gossip. Because my Bible says no sin makes it into heaven. But it is important every now and again the church stops and addresses an issue. Because right now in Watertown, South Dakota, this coming Saturday, there's going to be an event, a gay pride event. I don't, I don't hate nobody there. And, in fact, I probably know a number of them. I've worked with some of them. I work at Starbucks, for crying out loud. So I, you, you could talk to those people that I have never mistreated any of them. In fact, I have some good friendships with some of those people. But I don't treat them as a separate class of society. And I believe one day that they'll come to this church. And we've had people that were homosexual that have come to this church and have shared their struggles with me. And they kept coming back and coming back and coming back. But no matter how close you get to anybody dealing with any sin, it does not give a church, a person, any permission to change the stance of the Word of God. The church must take a stand, but we must not become obsessed with singular issues. Otherwise, we'll never get to the core issue. Because the core issue is the gospel. Paul didn't go out evangelizing political problems. He didn't, he didn't go up to people and say, hey, what's your sexual orientation? He didn't go, hey, are you gay? That's not what Paul did. You know what Paul asked? He goes, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They answered the question. He goes, oh, wait, wait. how were you then baptized? That's the issue. Because I, I've seen people get heated over certain elements of doctrines in the Bible, and they never get to the real issue, which is the gospel. Because you can, you, can, you can try to argue with someone about dinosaurs and evolution and get in a fist fight with someone, and now you, you've so bruised the relationship because you got so adamant and heated with someone that believes in evolution, and you're trying to prove your point of, of creation, and now you're angry with each other, you're not going to bring the gospel to them. And that's any issue. And so whoever we deal with and whoever we witness to, it must be out of a spirit of meekness love, and kindness. I don't know if we're, what kind of altar call we're going to have. Let's just, let's gather around front. We're going to have, we're going to have a moment of prayer here. I don't, I don't think we're going to have wailing and travailing and tongues and all that. If we do, then that's fantastic. But I, I really felt just a very clear impression to teach today because it is, it is a major issue 
And it, it, it's in every corner of the United States of America. It's not just, you know, in San Francisco. I mean, it's only four hours east of us in Minneapolis, which was voted, you know, the gayest city in the North America. Um, so it's, it's everywhere, and, it, and it's here in Watertown, South Dakota. And if, we, if we're not instructed properly and we don't know how to treat people properly, God is not going to bless a church that has a bad spirit. We have the truth, but we've got to have a right spirit with the truth that we have. Paul, Paul said, but speaking the truth in love. Paul said, you know, to be, or Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. And this is how I want us to pray here. One, whatever your vices that you struggle with, Jesus Christ can give you the opposite nature. He can help you with whatever your problem is. If you're here and you're a gossiper, you, 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 you end up in the same hell as a murderer. If you're here and you're an adulterer, you, ha- you end up in the same hell as someone that practices witchcraft or lesbianism or whatever it is. God doesn't discriminate with sin. Sin is sin. But what we need to do is make sure that we ask God for his spirit to help us to overcome our struggle of sin. And the other thing I want us to pray here is to pray, God, everywhere I go, you're not, this, is, this sounds so, this is tongue-in-cheek. This is not completely literal. Understand what I'm saying. But you're not going to find normal sinners anymore. You're not going to find good sinners anymore. Meaning, back in the day, you know, people may struggle with a couple things. Today, it's complete dysfunction and chaos. We live in a fallen world of just absolute dysfunction. And if we don't know how to function in the midst of a dysfunctional world, we're not going to reach that world. And I want to reach souls. I want to see lives change. I want to see people delivered. I want to see people transformed. Because if God can raise a dead person back to life, if God can open up blinded eyes, if God can unplug deaf ears, do you think it's possible God can help an angry man have peace? Do you think it's possible that God can help someone that struggles with heterosexual fornication relationships to be clean and to be separate? Do you think it's possible God can help someone struggling with these thoughts of homosexuality? God can do everything anything. There's nothing too hard for our God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that such were some of us. Lord, some of us here, Lord, we messed around with witchcraft. Some of us in this room messed around with meth. Some people in this room, God, messed around with marijuana, cigarettes. People in this room, God, that struggle with adultery and fornication. God, there's all walks of life in this building right here. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that this church makes a clear stand. But in that stance, Lord, that we be the most loving church in Watertown, South Dakota. Love does not mean compromise. Love means speaking the truth in love. I will speak the truth in love in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, God, those that struggle, those that battle, those that wrestle in the name of Jesus.